we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 9, Access Supports for Living, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Patterns and Paradigm. Um, I hope you enjoyed our last one with Barry Rothfeld. Barry's one of the truly accomplished members of the media profession. Um, I hope you enjoyed his insight. If you did, please remember to ask someone to take a listen to one of our podcasts. You can find it on Apple or Spotify and wherever else you find your podcasts. This week's trend or bubble, I keep returning to this, this business of electric cars. So there have been a lot of announcements coming out of Washington from Ford, from General Motors about what the United States is doing. So Pattern and Paradigm took a look at what was happening in China, Europe, Japan, and It's interesting, some aspects of the search for that affordable electric vehicle that makes everyone happy are advanced. Tesla's been at it for 14 years. But China's ability to throw money at this and their ability to automate, no, they're not really worried about unions. And we are because they're good wage positions as long as we can protect them. This is, without a doubt, a trend. But if there is a race to find a variety of electric vehicles, Europe, Japan, China are going to quickly outpace the United States unless there is something really dramatically different in how we approach the creation of such vehicles. So this one's a trend, not a bubble. It's going to happen, but we're going to need to be aggressive or imaginative in a way in terms of how to produce it. One other point, you know, China, for instance, supply chain, you know, the batteries, they have the supply chain issue completely figured out. They just don't have enough production of vehicles yet. Let me ask, uh, what's up, JD? And I'm going to ask myself this question as what pattern is working on this week. I wanted to just briefly mention a large project that we're working on in Orange County. It has a lot to do with conflict resolution. And I wanted to just clarify for our listeners who may know something about this project. It was designed, it had been five years in the making. And initially it was birthed out of the conflict between the ultra-Orthodox population and the rest of 
Orange County. This project is not going to solve that tension. This project is going to attempt to find a piece of that tension and create a pilot program for how mediation, conflict resolution can possibly result in a better way than litigation or anger. Does it solve the big picture completely? No. And at the same time, we're still in the process of looking at one that is a piece of the social justice issues. And we're looking at a number of topics, and we hope to have the second one of those settled on. We did find one involving water in the town of Woodbury. And that's what we're going to be looking at as a way to bring the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi community to the table, along with the decision makers in the town of Woodbury. Um, So more on that one to come. This week, we're really excited to have Ron Calavito, the president and CEO of Access Supports for Living. Ron is a longtime employee there and in 2019 was elevated to be the president and CEO. For those of you that don't know Access, it's a $100 million organization. It has well over 1,500 employees. It touches all nine of the counties in Hudson Valley that Pattern works on. They work with people with both mental and physical disabilities. And um, I think you're going to enjoy the conversation with Ron as Ron really tried to look very hard at where they were before the pandemic, what the pandemic did to change their model for service delivery, and then what aspects of it might be in the future to remain. And that's very much the theme of patterns and paradigms. Hi, Ron. How are you doing? And, and, and how... How have you been managing through the pandemic and your staff? You know, I'm just curious, like on, I ask all of my guests, how, how are you doing? Um, well, th- well, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for, for having me. Um, I mean, I think we're, you know, we're doing where we've, we've pivoted um, in a number of ways over the last several months. And I think things, you know, continue to adapt, but um, we have a great team that's, um, that's working, I, I would say kind of beyond full speed still. So um you know, everything from our, our frontline staff who are, who are right there, you know, in the trenches, leading the work to the leadership team is, that's making sure, you know, we're getting resources and, and safety and, and now vaccine management um, and, you know, access to vaccine available um, to the to all the individuals that we support as well as, um, you know, to our staff. So, I mean, I think um, we're, we're doing, I guess, as well as can be expected, I think would be the, probably the best way. And in some cases, um, I, I would say better than expected, still still growing and still finding opportunities. Well, and I think doing as well as could be expected or better than expected puts you well above many other organizations. So kudos to you and the whole team at Access for, for doing that. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't we just take a step back and describe the mission of Access and why don't you correct me? Because my natural inc- inclination would be the people that you serve are clients, but that may not be the right term. Sure. So, I mean, just starting there, um, we just refer to them as people. 
Um, there, there are people like you and I, um, and they happen to utilize different, um, different supports and, and different services that the organization um, provides. Um, you know, tying to mission, um, Access's mi mission is, is simply to help people live the healthiest and fullest lives possible. So that happens in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different um, points along one's journey, but um, that really ties to finding areas of unmet need and looking to fill them um, throughout the Hudson Valley and, 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 and beyond probably in the not too distant future. So you have a full array of services. When I was looking through the website, there's mental health services, there's substance abuse services. Maybe walk us through a little bit of uh, all the different, because I don't think people have any idea of the total, the vast array, and even the size. I mean, you're a $100 million organization. Yeah, so the, so the organization from a revenue perspective is, is right around that mark, the $100 million mark. So it's a pretty large organization. Um, we operate in um, nine counties um, throughout the Hudson Valley um, and with a wide variety of service areas, as, as you mentioned. So, um, and, and, I, and I should mention about 1,500 staff. So quite, you know, a large, a large number of staff supporting, um, supporting the work. But we operate, um, we kind of break it down into a handful of core areas. So um, you started to mention our behavioral health services, which focus on mental health and substance use. Um, so there's a number of things that, um, that we do there from counseling centers to programs um, supporting um, the early onset, um, first, first diagnosis of psychosis with individuals with schizophrenia, um, as well as um, more intensive day programs, um, mobile mental health, um, that happens in um, both Ulster County and Orange County, um, and then additionally um, in Rockland County now for children. Um, and then um, one of the newer services over the last couple of years um, that kind of wraps around a lot of this is a 24-7 urgent care um, for mental health and substance use. So those services um, are available 24-7 and um, went virtual um, um, right at the start of the pandemic and um, continue to operate um, in a mixed model today. Virtual, available anytime, anywhere, but also some in-person um, access to services. So that's kind of behavioral health in a nutshell. Um, other um, mo more, most significant part of the organization um, is services for ind individuals with developmental disabilities or intellectual and developmental disabilities. So those range from um, residential settings to services in the community, um, and also services um, supporting um, employment and, and, and respite at times. Um, we also have children and family services. So those um, are working um, often with um, preventive services for families um, with youth at risk, um, but also support, um, there's programs that support expecting mothers, um, as well as um, foster care and a children's diagnostic center, um, which is doing um, court-placed assessments um, for children, um, you know, all in an effort to, um, for safe return home, and if not, um, for stabilization um, process until someone can return home. Um, the other parts of the organization focus on housing. Um, housing has been um, a, a service that's really grown with us over the last decade, um, including, um, I think we're on our 10th project now in affordable housing, supporting um, um, permanent housing for individuals with developmental disabilities and um, homeless population um, where there may also be um, a mental illness um, 
um, which is which is common, but um, also with that population to provide permanent housing. And um, the last area, which I, I which is really goes back um, to the to the roots of the organization when it was originally named Occupations Inc., is around employment. Um, so we have um, access business solutions is part of what we do, and that is where we um, employ around 300 um, plus individuals um, that have a, a disability, um, and they work in a various settings. We manufacture products, um, we provide service contracts um, to government customers, to commercial customers, from anything from food service to custodial to facilities management. Um, and on the manufacturing side, um, one of the larger areas we do is we are um, a manufacturer of hearing protection um, and a distributor of safety products, um, some of which we do in partnership with um, a little company called 3M out of Minnesota. So that's the that that's kind of the 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 breadth, you know, quickly. There's a ton of services under the hood that make all that up though. Well, and 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 that the full panoply of services, I think most people have no idea that it is so broad. So let's see. $100 million organization, 15, roughly 1,500 employees. And how many people do you think you touch? Have um, you ever so tried it's about, to? It's about 11,000 people a year. Um, wow. The, the, the predominance of that is in behavioral health services um, because that's where we're seeing many people um, in shorter stays, smaller visits. Um, on the, if you were to look at the developmental disability side, um, a much more intensive service, particularly when you talk about 24/7 residential supports. So, um, you know, the, those are those are costly services, um, but well, but needed for some, you know, individuals who are the, have some of the greatest complexities um, that we serve. So we're almost at March 12th, and and that's an important day for me because that was the day that I said, "That's it, I'm going home." I'm packing up. I'm leaving the office. Um, that was my aha moment. Do you reckon or recall when that moment occurred for you? And you said, we've got to do things dramatically yeah. differently. Okay. So I, I, I believe, I believe it was actually the same day. If yeah. I, if I recall, if I recall, I think that was a Thursday. Um, it was, <laughs> it was I, and it was a converse and I was on a, um, a phone call um, um, with Naeem, our, our chief program officer, where we were having a conversation around closing um, our day programs and no longer having that and starting to um, dramatically change what, how we occupied space and use space and started, you know, in, in conversations around PPE and all those things were just, that, that was the conversation with that day. And um, from that point forward, things have been um, dramatically different. Um, you know, that was the first, I would say, at that point, everyone was just scrambling. So there was like, you know, all those activities were happening. If I had to say the moment that kind of it set in a bit more, and I probably don't remember the date of this, but um, we had had our um, first couple, the uh, first couple of people um, that we serve who were who had a COVID diagnosis. Um, didn't, if you remember early on, hospitals were overwhelmed and not prepared and people were being sent home. Um, in a in in health that they ordinarily would not leave the hospital um, right. because there needed to be room for for others who were much more acute. Um, so we had um, in about a forty eight hour period made a decision because we didn't have a there was no other planning at that point from government 
to actually turn um, part of our, the middle of our administrative building, so just down the hall from where I'm sitting today, um, into essentially a hospital step-down isolation unit for um, two of our individuals who are gonna be released from the hospital, but we felt not, um, not strong enough and still um, symptomatic, not wanting to return to, um, to their residences. Um, for fear of infection of others and their own and their own health and safety. And we essentially created a little mini, you know, step down ward um, out of a day program space right here in the middle of our building. So um, that being set up and staffing that um, and having that happen, you know, down the hall, I would say was probably one of the more significant events that I can, you know, that I can recall as far as an aha moment. Um, you know, um, second only in significance to those that we lost. Um, we've lost um, some staff. We've lost individuals we serve, um, as many have. So um, those were the most, you know, challenging moments and continue to be as they occur. And I think that um, for most people that don't understand the nature of your work, it is there is a very large labor-intensive, interactive nature to it. And there was no playbook for this. This was, you know, I, I, I know that you guys are really good at sort of thinking through the delivery of services. But at this moment in time, what was happening? Were there, you know, crash meetings of all senior staff? I'm, I'm always kind of curious what what happened a year ago. Um, there were, there were a lot of these types of, you know, like zoom and other meetings that were happening at, um, let's just say later hours than they may have normally been occurring because (laughs) particularly I would say in the first two or three weeks, um, stuff was changing so dramatically within the course of a day that being sure everyone was on the same page that evening was important to start the next day and what we were what we were learning, including, um, you know, starting with safety because PPE was so hard to come by. Um, and we actually were procuring PPE, not just for access, but on behalf of some of our partners where we were able to, just because we do manufacturing and we do distribution, we had some, some we had some different mechanisms and channels to, to resource that stuff, but that was, you know, that was constant as well as, um, ensuring safety, you know, primarily, most importantly, was our residential settings. Um, You know, we support about 170 people in residential, you know, group settings where those were the greatest risks. And often, um, because of the need for that type of setting for the the individual we support, um, there's other complicating medical factors. So not only is there the group nature of the living that creates, you know, potential exposure, there's also um, the, the much higher risk around someone um, acquiring COVID and what that would look like. So there was, there was, yeah, there was constant planning and meeting and adjusting um, in addition to um, much greater communication from, from my office with the leadership team, but with staff in general, um, you know, it was actually a great opportunity to be out there more with staff routinely talking, um, you know, multiple times a week at times with various groups to make sure Everyone heard stuff. Everyone had a chance to ask questions and make sure any safety concerns primarily were brought right to the forefront. So a a couple of things. First of all, um, you're owed a thank you for everything that you did with your masks. Um, Your story about how you got that to not just access, but to other organizations and other people. You're truly to be commended for that. 
but then let's divide this a little bit into, so you have 1,500 employees that have one set of issues. Then you have the people that you work with that have a completely other set of issues. So there's like your workforce, well, am I coming to work? Am I not coming to work? And then you have the people that you serve. You got to serve them. I, this this must have been an incredible period in which you had to think through the management of an organization such as Access. First and foremost, you know, I referenced the residential population as well as people we we support in the community. The our, our direct workforce didn't miss a beat. Those on the front lines, you know, continued to work. Um, we did everything we could possibly do to make sure they were safe and protected and supported. Um, but that's that's where really all the all the kudos and all the um, you know uh, all the celebration of the good work should be. Um, you know the rest the the rest of us did what we could to support them. So that that's first and foremost, and that and that work continued and continues to today. Um, you know the different you know a, a different area of supporting um, on the behavioral health side and family and children's side in particular was um, I guess similar for both the people um, and the staff um, in that telehealth and tele and, and working with Zoom and different types of communication really is what made the difference there. Um, that was a you know a rapid change, um, including procuring you know equipment. That we didn't have, um, you know, making sure we got extra of things. So we were we were fairly well prepared, but needed to do some more of that over the you know the first few weeks. And um, that was that was I would say a tremendous success. Um, we saw and are, and are still continuing to see about a thirty percent uptick in utilization of behavioral health services since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and I can tell you that the changes in telehealth and, and the relaxed regulations have allowed people to um, to continue to have those supports um, where needed and, and have them more flexible than they did even pre-pandemic, which I think is really important. Um, so, you know, we are looking forward to a time where, you know, as and which is starting to happen as those things start to mix in and we start to have a mix of in-person and telehealth because there are still points at which in-person are, are really important. Um, but telehealth has proven to reduce no-show rates for people that that really need to, you know, maintain schedule and utilize services, um, and they're enjoying. They're actually participating and sometimes engaged better um, in services when it's on their own. When it's on their own, you know, schedules to to some degree. So I think that telehealth was really a big one for um, staff and for um, and for people we that we support. And then, of course, um, the frontline staff that were out there all the time was really just, you know, main focus was was safety and uh, safety of them, and, and so that they could be safely um, um, supporting those people that that would live with us in some of our residential areas. So let's let's talk about telehealth, which has been one of the themes of this podcast, which is this great um, awakening to the idea that there are services that can be conducted through telemedicine. And yet at the very beginning, we were not equipped. I mean, people had to discover platforms. There was uh, HIPAA issues. There were um, insurance issues where insurance companies said, well, we don't reimburse for that. 
how did this all play out? And and how did you manage to incorporate it into your delivery of services? So, I mean, the first thing was, you know, we've been we've been fortunate through some federal um, some federal grant funding through um, uh, through SAMHSA to that really helps helped create the urgent care um, before it even went virtual. That created this urgent care model that wrapped around. So um, when we went virtual on, I think it was the 23rd um, of March. So within a week uh, or so of all this happening, we had the virtual model standard stood up and we, and we went. That provided us, I, I would say, the buffer for government to catch up with relaxed regulations that we had support that wasn't you know, contingent on, on being able to bill and get paid per se. Like we had, we had that buffer that really helped us balance that. But I would say, you know, to the benefit of government, they did act pretty quickly to reduce the burdens that had been in place for a long time because the utilization in our field of telehealth pre-pandemic, I, I, I believe was in the single digits. So, you know, we, when we talk about, you know, how often it was used and that may even be being generous. So, um, you know, now it's, you know, to, to imagine um, operating without telehealth now, just about a year later is um, almost just as hard um, to, to think about. So that was, that, that was, you know, I would say that's how it kind of came to be. And then, you know, working out, um, you know, some of the other, some of the other people that deserve some credit behind the scenes in all organizations, um, you know, I, I think across healthcare are, are the people that are working behind the scenes trying to figure out how to bill and get paid for all of this because rules were changing um, daily, weekly at, at best um, for, for months. So um, that process is, is still catching up with itself in a lot of areas, but um, first and foremost, you know, we were able to have enough support out there and reduced regulations to get people the services they needed um, despite um, shutdowns and, and the, you know, the pandemic that was, you know, really, um, really heightened back in, you know, in, in March, April, May. Um, and then again, you know, near the end, you know, the end of um, 2020 into 2021. So pardon the pun, access. So if we're going to talk about telehealth, even this morning, as we were getting online for our discussion, my broadband in Sullivan County was not cooperating. How have you found as we pivot to this world of telehealth, have your, the people that you serve, did they have the appropriate amount of access or even the knowledge for how to get online? And how did that work? Yeah, I mean, I think it was mixed. I think largely it was successful. One of the, um, the biggest things that we think remains out there because, well, so we could get on the soapbox around making sure everyone has adequate access to broadband, which, you know, should just be at this point. Um, yeah, it's not so, a soapbox. It's a reality. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that should be, you know, that, that's clear. But until that happens, you know, one of the things that we think is important and advocating for is that telephone only based communication for some services needs to be allowed to continue because not everyone, as you said, has the ability um, whether it's the whether it's the connection being strong enough, whether there's the device and you know the affordability of having it, um, or the knowledge of how to use it 
to be able to navigate all those things and have those as expectations of people who may be utilizing services to support crisis events in their life. So um, telephone, telephone only um, still needs to remain um, supported um, in some of these cases, um, particularly, you know, if we have medical professionals, um, you know, assessing that that's, that that's effective and needed because um, we're not there yet. I wish we, I wish I could say we're there that everyone has, you know, adequate access to this. That's not the case. And, and the Hudson Valley is a, is a, great example of um, how different access can be from, you know, five miles apart. And you operate in a piece of nine counties, predominantly orange, predominantly others, but, and does the broadband connectivity vary greatly from uh, community to community throughout the Valley? Yes. I mean, Sullivan County, I think would be a good example of, um, where it's not where it's not the strongest, but you know, there's also rural parts of Ulster County and Dutchess County where we serve. Um, you know, so and you know, even um, Orange County where most of our services are. There, there's plenty. Of, you know, you drive around here a bit, you're going to find some dead spots. So this is not, um, you know, this is not well covered. Whether it's from a cell-based signal or or um, you know, direct connections into you know into homes. Um, it, it's interesting that pre-pandemic pattern does a lot of work in infrastructure. So traditional infrastructure, roads, sewer, bridges, and then the infrastructure needed for broadband or 5G connectivity, um, we just put it to the top of the list. You know, what has occurred during the pandemic has proven that that is no, you know, I think as you were saying, Ron, it's almost like electricity. Every house has to have this, and especially for the people you serve. Um, you know, in reading about access, one of the areas that is mentioned is that you are a metric-driven organization. So any, any examples? I mean, you've had a long history of working your way up to the position you have as the CEO of uh, Access. How do you use metrics? Pattern is a metric organization, so we we love to talk about uh, you know wonky stuff like this. So, so this is I this I thought you said this was only forty five minutes. So I just, <laughs> no, um, I mean, we, no we we are um, and and actually um, you know we take pride in it and don't shy away from the fact that we you know we measure and we want to prove lots of things because um, you know we've we know it works. What you, you know, what you measure is kind of what you do. Um, so, you know, to start with, so, um, but we, you know, we measure, I mean, there's hundreds of things I'm sure, you know, but there's, there's about 125 or so like really formal things that we keep track of. But um, the way that it's organized is we organize it through um, a series of about 12 value streams so different portions of the organization. So I've mentioned some today, things like behavioral health for adults or children and developmental disabilities, employment, housing, um, but all of those areas are how we're kind of organized. They all kind of cross, they kind of cross reference um, different metrics and goals from everything from customer service to quality metrics to um, um, me measurements around um, um, financial matters, so revenue and cost and, and surplus, 
um, as well as safety and wellness for staff. So there, there's many different things, but they we the one thing we've done is created some more like vision type goals that everything has to point to. So, you know, we were talking for just a bit um, on access, you know, access to, you know, we were talking about, you know, telehealth and some of those services, but one of those core areas is um, what we just call access 24-7. How do we continue to evolve our services that are available whenever and wherever um, they're needed? Um, so that that's a core area. You know, other core areas are around um, reaching greater numbers of, of people um, achieving employment. So today that, that number with people we directly support and in the community is around 450. You know, our goal is a thousand. Um, we wanna increase our donor base of people that know the organization, participate in the organization. Um, we want to be, you know, both um, known um, more for the work we do and the work we do in public education in the state and on a national level. Those are those are some of the areas. And then of course we wanna be financially viable. So there's goals around, you know, financial metrics, but also one which um, sounds pretty boring, but it's reducing our administrative rate because what we want is we want more dollars directly hitting program services. So if we continue to be more efficient with the administrative costs of the organization, um, that we can continue, that we can, you know, we're, we'll continue to be better and better stewards of, of public dollars that largely support the organization. As we continue to move um, in a positive direction, the infection rates going down, more vaccines are getting out there. Springtime is hopefully arriving. How is the vaccination process working for you, for your employees and for the people you serve? So, I mean, I, I think it's been mixed. Um, you know, it's obviously this is a, this is a challenge, I think, unlike any any logistics challenge that's been faced. So, so um, we were we were fortunate. Our uh, our team really worked early on on partnering um, with local organizations to get access for our our you know our one A priority one A folks. So we actually um, were very successful quickly in getting um, our our residential um, individuals that we support served. Or, or vaccinated, so so that that was strong to the point that you know today that group is in the you know over ninety percent has received the first a first a first shot, and I think we're actually probably close to like seventy percent having received a second shot. So that was that was critical as it related to those that had the greatest risk uh, of acquiring COVID and and um, you know potential for really poor outcomes. Um, that said the staff that support um, those individuals and, and frontline staff, generally speaking, have been um, slower to adopt and be willing, not, not for necessarily lack of access that we had early on, which is becoming harder now because other groups are mixed in. So now it's kind of more open, but um, that's, been, um, that's been the biggest challenge and, and a challenge that I think has been heard, not just with access, it's a, it's a not nationwide um, issue around really, um, you know, and I, I a lot of it resides with, you know, um, generational distrust of the health system for a whole host of reasons that now is, you know, playing out. So um, I'm hopeful um, we're starting to see a, a little bit of an uptick in participation in those areas. And, you know, I am hopeful that um, things like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine getting approved, you know, with a single shot um, may also make this, you know, more, um, 
uh, more likely to be adopted by others. But, um, you know, otherwise, when we start to get outside of the core priority groups, um, then it's a bit, you know, then it's a bit more, it's a bit more challenging, you know, you're kind of, you know, trying to run from place to place and sign up here and sign up there and someone's got five shots and someone's got 10 shots today and and how do you do it like that stuff is where i think um some of the you know the centralization of this could be could be stronger but um but we have seen really you know really strong efforts around larger clinics and things including um direct clinics at some of our homes being performed through CVS, um, where they're actually coming out and do clinics on site. So, you know, a, a lot of it today is, I, I think, is, is really about supply. So as we start to see the supply numbers hit, um, I, I think some of this will be will be kind of in the rearview mirror, hopefully. Um, but the biggest the biggest challenge has been, you know, uh, for, for portions of, 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 of our staff, um, really, um, willingness to, to get the vaccine is probably the, the most important thing. So we've been doing everything we can on education around that and, you know, providing updates and staff that are willing and have done it, telling their story and why and why it's important. Um, but those are, those are, those are, that, that's the number one issue, not the logistics. Um, so hopefully this brings us to what some might call a new normal and, and what does the world look like post um, COVID. I know we're not out of the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination. So one thing I was thinking is, you know, telemedicine or telehealth is one area that you've mentioned. Are there others that you had to adjust to, pivot to, that you may say, you know, something we weren't doing that before, but we should continue doing it. It, it, it actually is not a bad way for us to provide our services. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, just simply, you know, greater work from home or work from alternative sites flexibility is important. Um, you know, attracting talent into our field is important. So the ability to have more flexible work schedules and arrangements across, uh, you know, a wide variety of, of positions that we have, uh, I think is something that we're, you know, that we're figuring out what that looks like post pandemic, because it's not gonna be the same as it was and um, nor does it need to be. Um, that in turn also may allow us to have a smaller footprint as, as it relates to physical space, um, which is, you know, which is also important. If we're not, you know, having the dollar spent on paying for those spaces, maintaining those spaces and all of those, all the things that go with it, those dollars can drive back to, you know, to direct supports, um, you know, for services. So that, that to me probably stands out as, as one of the, um, one of the key things. Also, I think some of the, um, the other things that just need to continue as a result of this um, is the, the planning, the pre-planning, the, how do you support people? You know, I mentioned the isolation center that we created. Well, how do those plans, how do we keep those plans active so that if something happens, we're once again, ready to start that immediately. Do we have stockpiles of PPE and things like that? And you know, I think it's more kind of worst case disaster scenario planning needs to be more at the forefront because even if it's not, you know, we should all be fortunate that we don't need to pull out that playbook for another, you know, 50 years. But um, the likelihood is, you know, the world is getting more crowded and more complicated. It's probably more than likely it's not going to be, um, you know, another hundred years between pandemics. So I think those are those are important things that need to stay. But you know the the things that have been learned that have been positive, I think, really are 
use of space, work can be done in lots of different ways and forums, and, and of, course, um, of course, telehealth. Let me just ask you that one magical question, which probably was a question before the pandemic, but maybe the pandemic has changed your priorities. So if there was this magic wand and money was no longer the object, it was somehow flowing to you, where would you spend it? What would be the most effective use of found money or new sources of funding? Where do you think you'd put it if, if it came your way? So, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's the same pre-pandemic and post. It's just been highlighted to a greater degree. It's investing in the wages and salaries, benefits and training of the frontline staff. Um, not paid nearly what they should be for the work and responsibilities that they carry. Um, so I think that's that's absolutely the number one the number one use as far as you know, if it's about different models and if, and if things could change as how we, you know, how we get paid and how we earn dollars for the work that we're doing, I think that would be the continued transition um, with, with some speed um, to moving towards models where we're being reimbursed for the quality outcomes that, that people are achieving, as opposed to often lots of regulatory things, checking boxes and forms and plans being done by some date or that somebody, somebody's head was in a bed as opposed to how is, how is their life going? How are their, how are their health outcomes? How are their, you know, their, their social outcomes? How are those things going? That's a dramatic shift from where we are today to really pay for value as opposed to, um, paying for kind of checking off certain requirements. So that would be the, you know, from a just uh, how it would happen, that would be number one. But the, you know, the open the open uh, checkbook uh, <laughs> question would, you know, I think it's definitely, you know, supporting the, supporting the, the frontline workers um, in all the different areas of the organization, both in wage, but also, you know, in, in training and, um, and that making sure that they're prepared for the work um, the best that they possibly can be. Ron, thank you so much for joining us on Patterns and Paradigms. Um, we wish you nothing but uh, success and, and good fortune in continuing to deliver the services that you do. Same to you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.